Stuart, surely you have a pun for this one. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's a bad one. (laughs) Well, they're all bad. Oh, oh no. (laughs) What does the guy from Jersey say when he sees the ocean? Uh, I don't know. A, one C. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I... I really like that one. I'm not going to lie. That one really, that one does it for me. The Curb Science Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. But more of the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible if it's true. We should always do your own homework and let us know when we're ready. This episode of The Curbsiders is brought to you in partnership with the American College of Physicians. ACP members can claim free CME and mock credit at www.acponline.org forward slash curbsiders. Hey guys, it's it's pretty Hi. it's pretty late right now, but I'm, yeah. uh, we just had a great conversation with the wonderful Dr. Jeffrey Colburn uh, on diabetes. Uh, Stuart, you're, you're still with us? Yeah, I think I interrupted you like four times. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Paul was just mentioning this a few minutes ago to our guest. You, you get good at tuning Stuart out when he's doing his thing. So Paul, it becomes kind of white noise in the background after a while. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, can you tell the audience uh, what this show is, what we do on the show? Oh, happy to, Matt. This is the Internal Medicine Podcast, and we use expert interviews, sometimes with my nemeses, to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. Uh, this time around, we do get to know our guests a little bit better up front, um, so please do listen to the first 10 minutes and don't skip past because you're missing out on joy. When you say nemeses, <laughs> I suspect you're referring to Jeff. Well, I, I, I'm assuming I'm going to have more than one nemesis that will be interviewing at some point, but yeah, Jeff, Jeff first and foremost. There can Paul, be only one Colburn. I, I guess Paul hates a lot of people, Stuart. That's a burn. <laughs> well... I'm going to inter- set up the show a little bit, and, and then, Paul, I, I think it'd be best if you read uh, the great Dr. Colburn's bio, just because, he, you, as you mentioned, he's your nemesis. But uh, for people who aren't in on the joke, listen to some of our earlier episodes where Jeff was on multiple shows when Paul wasn't there, and then we kind of joked around with Paul that Jeff was going to take his job, so that's, that's kind of where this all is coming from. Uh, but tonight on the show, what we did was we asked you on Twitter— uh, what did you want us to talk about? There was a lot of questions about A1Cs, uh, A1C targets, the newer medications, the risks, the benefits. Uh, there was questions about even going back to the the basics, metformin and insulin and titrating medications. We talked about all that. The show jumps all over the place. It was really a pleasure to talk with Jeff about all these great things. So, Paul, can you tell them a little bit about why of Jeff and why we we had him on the show? Sure, because Jeff is genuinely one of the nicest human beings in the world, and then also incredibly humble, despite being really, really well versed in these guidelines, and, and in fact, the author of some of them. So, Dr. Colburn, or Jeff, my nemesis, is a program director in endocrinology and a co-author of the VA Diabetes Guidelines. He is also the assistant clerkship director for the Internal Medicine Program uh, at Uniformed Services University as well in San Antonio, and his research interests include diabetes as well as medical student education. So without further ado, let's get to our discussion with Dr. Jeffrey Colburn. 
Jeff, we are so excited to have you back on, and not just because Paul Williams right. has identified you as his nemesis, but we do want to, you to remind the audience about yourself and maybe start out with a one-liner uh, and include something like, what do you do outside the hospital or outside the clinic? Uh, thanks. I appreciate you all having me on the show. Um, I'm a 36-year-old academic physician, uh, do endocrinology as a uh, newly minted program director, and I've, uh, I'm an associate clerkship director for internal medicine, so I teach medicine across a, a broad spectrum of learners. Um, and I have an identical twin brother, Paul, so I've been competing with a Paul my entire life, and so I'm going to steal oh, Paul's job. <laughs> so that's my goal in life is to take your job, Paul. <laughs> Do you, um, do you really have an identical twin brother named Paul? I absolutely do. Um, he sounds fantastic. Uh, <laughs> I he, think I like not him in any way. And uh, yeah, I'm gonna. I'm totally. Is gonna he a doctor? Um, he is. He's a. Uh, he's an optometrist at the, for the VA in Boston. But uh, yeah, when I'm outside the hospital, I, I chase two little kids around. Um, I have a, a wife who's an internist uh, that works for the VA, and um, uh, we like to do outdoor adventures like rock climbing and scuba diving, and we we enjoy traveling. And, um, yeah, a lot of things that uh, are, are some adventure and some, some uh, thrill. Sounds, it sounds fun. Do the, it's eye-opening. Do the kids rock climb with you? Uh, at the indoor gym? Um, yeah, they definitely get on there. I mean, my, my uh, soon-to-be six-year-old uh, definitely enjoys getting up there. She's becoming tall and lanky like me, and um, I think she's going to do great at it. Hmm. It's all clear to me now. Yes. Well, Jeff, besides rock climbing, uh, we were since you've been on the show before, we've already asked you our usual questions. Why don't you give the audience, maybe give them a pick of the week, something you've been enjoying lately or something you just recommend to them? Yeah, I don't know. So I have a, a colleague, a, a retired endocrinologist from my field who um, I get together frequently for, for kind of our... Our, our mandates away from uh, home and to go out and to geek out on endocrinology and just discuss. Uh, we like to read literature and, and old books and, and just uh, have fun in the nerd space. Um, uh, he's referred to me to many great books. Uh, one that I read recently um, is a book by Richard Bach, who's, uh, I don't know if you've heard of him, he's a, a former pilot in the Air Force, uh, aviation guru, and wrote some interesting books. Uh, I read the book Illusions, which is a tiny book under 200 pages and it can be kind of um uh it, it's interesting it can be mind-bending um and uh yeah it, it's a very fast read and uh makes you question things it's kind of interesting is it a fiction book or a non-fiction book uh totally fiction um he wrote he writes these extended allegories and and uh kind of uh, kind of play on a, on a concept that kind of relates to broader themes of life. And uh, he, he's an interesting author to read about. Um, yeah, but the, the book Illusions, the, the Adventures of a Reluctant Messiah, um, was a big book in the 70s. And I don't know if anyone's heard of it recently because there's more uh, contemporary stuff out there. But it, it's a cool read. It's kind of fun. Oh, he is. Yeah, I'm just looking. He's Jonathan Livingston Seagull. Is, yes. I guess yeah, probably what he's that, best known for. That's his other book. That Yeah, he's very well yeah. known for that one. Yep. Paul, did you want to give a pick of the week? Sure, yeah, nothing nearly so classy. Um, in keeping with my usual picks, uh, I'll go very niche, and this for like one person and God knows where, our, our Nepalese listeners. <laughs> but I'm going to recommend um, the documentary Industrial Accident. It's the history of Wax Tracks Records, or actually it's the story of Wax Tracks Records. So uh, are you guys familiar with Wax Tracks Records? No. Not at They're all. Now. 
Yeah, perfect. So this will be great for all of you. So it's it, it's a neat it's a neat story. So it's basically it's directed by Julia Nash, who's the daughter of one of the founders of Wax Tracks Records. And so this was initially a record store opened up in 1978, and eventually involved into a, a music label. And it was just it was esoteric. They just liked good stuff. Um, and then as they liked it enough that they actually started sort of um, serving as a record label and importing music for certain bands, and basically became sort of the nexus of the industrial music scene. So it was it's if for if you're like me and you grew up in the 90s and you had a certain musical taste, so to see interviews with like the singer from My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult or to hear from Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails or uh, Al Jorgensen from Ministry, it's just sort of a, a, a sort of a trip to my checkered past. So I enjoyed it very much. It's nicely done. Um, the record went defunct as most DIY projects do, um, but it's a nice sort of chunk of music history if you if you like sort of late 80s, early 90s industrial music, as I'm sure most of you do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm playing some right now, actually. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Stuart, did you want to go next or you need some more time? You know what? Uh, sure, I'll, I'll go ahead and go next. My pick of the week is... Act- so I, I know we talked about this before, the free solo movie. I went ahead and watched it. And uh, not normally something that I, that I would like, especially since I'm afraid of, afraid of heights. I kind of had to put it on like a 1.5 speed when he was climbing without any climbing gear. And I just kind of the whole time was... Uh, a, a little concerned, but uh, one of the reasons why I liked the movie was actually because of him, because of yeah. of Alex Honnold himself. He he reminds me a lot of individuals in my family. I'm pretty, uh, I, I think they mentioned it once that he has Asperger's syndrome, but that kind of interaction between him him and his girlfriend if you watch the movie that that really is what kind of stuck out to me that um the the difficulty when it comes to really talking to people that are on the spectrum and just having that that uh patience and that love for them to me is was really um that's what brought it home home for me i was Um, thinking of you I, i was thinking of you when i watched that because uh just that they mentioned yeah. they mentioned that his father his mother was like yeah i think his father had aspergers and yeah. then they i don't know if they even expressly said he had it but like i, I think they purposely think made the film it, that way because it was I, i'm fairly certain his girlfriend said it once or okay. twice yeah because I, I was waiting to hear that that specific word the yeah. entire time i was i was watching it but um but yeah a lot of the, the same issues that he has with just interacting with people are, are things that that a lot of the guys in my family have and it was you know, it was heartbreaking to see it because his response was essentially to just kind of withdraw from everything. And right. that that can be very, it, it can be lonely. And so, um, you know, that that's, I don't know, that that's why I liked it. It wasn't yeah. just because of, of the rock climbing, it was because of Alex Honnold himself. Right. I thought I was going to like the movie because it's this like, he's in, I think, Yosemite, right? And he's, he's, he's yeah. rock climbing. And I thought it was just going to be this exciting rock climbing movie. And that is definitely a big part of it. But then there's this kind of like love story behind this like really happy-go-lucky, you know, beautiful young woman and this guy who's like world-class athlete with Asperger's. And that is... that is as fascinating as the climbing thing that he's doing. Uh, and so it's I, I can't, really good I can't remember the guy's name that was essentially his his protege, his protege. But he he almost acted like a little or a, a big brother for him. Yeah. Um, who was looking out for him all the time, and that, like, literally, I had that when I was when I was sixteen. I met someone who was nineteen who really kind of stepped in as a big brother role model, and that kind of interaction with especially with someone that can really kind of model those behaviors for you. For someone on the spectrum, it really helps to have that kind of interaction. I'm going to give a pick of the week that'll be quick because, and it's going to transition us to the uh, to the show tonight. So this is a an episode, a podcast episode of 
uh, Peter Atia's The Drive with the guest is Jason Fung, MD. He is, and it's titled Fasting as a Potent Antidote to Obesity, Insulin Resistance, Type 2 Diabetes, and the Many Symptoms of Metabolic Illness. And uh, we, we probably won't be talking about fasting on, on the episode tonight, but I do think it's a really, th- this guy, Dr. Fung, has some really interesting things to say about how he treats patients with type 2 diabetes, which I found just like jaw-dropping and certainly challenging a lot of like the paradigms. But <laughs> to get to uh, to get to more, um, you know... Well, jaw-dropping because it does intermittent fasting. Yeah, to get to our more conventional... <laughs> that, was, that was a stretch. <laughs> that was a stretch. <laughs> okay. But Jeff, uh, let's let's present you with a case from Cashlack Memorial Hospital. Stanley Yelnats is a 48-year-old male. He's got CAD. He uh, had a history of uh, ST elevation MI. He had a LAD stent placed. His BMI is 30. He has hypertension. And he's here for follow-up. He was recently diagnosed with type 2 diabetes... His A1C is 9.5% uh, on his annual labs, and he's on a stable dose of metformin, but he's still having fasting glucoses that are above 200 and postprandial glucose that's above 300. And he heard on TV commercials that SGLT2 inhibitors are just like the best drugs. He's got to get got to get on one of these. Um, but he also did hear some things about their safety. So uh, we are definitely going to talk about these newer meds, um, but... You know, I mentioned in the prompt there that his A1C is 9.5%. And Jeff, you co-authored the VA Diabetes Guidelines. And uh, there was a lot of controversy. The ACP put out their guidelines saying most people need an A1C of 7 to 8%. Can you talk about a little bit about A1C targets and what how we should approach them? Yeah, so A1C is a, is a, it's a test that has certainly a utility for us because it's easy to get. Um, it captures three months of blood sugars that the patient experiences, and it has some intrinsic risks to it, so three that I'll mention. So one is that since it's an average, you know, a patient with a reasonable A1C could be experiencing high highs and low lows, and that might average out to look okay. Um, the second risk to it is that A1C has a variability to it that is maybe not well understood um, or maybe not well explained. It is well understood. So an A1C of 7, for example, actually might be a 6.5 or a 7.5. Uh, and if you were to run the sample continuously over and over in a patient, despite you know it being the same day, um, you would see a variance um, of values that might come out. And the National Glycosylization Standardization Program, the NGSP, uh, is, I think, uh, to my knowledge, the first national standardization program for a laboratory test to occur where um, this organized group goes to all of the labs in the U.S. and will run standards and require them to see, like, how is your A1C doing? And I think we've all had the experience of having our A1Cs kind of running high or running low, um, but A1C has variability of a half percent to it, and so wow. um, that plays into the yeah um, that plays into it. And and then the the third thing I guess I would I would suggest to you is that uh, A1C can be um, falsely elevated or lowered by he- some health conditions. So when you think about an A1C, if you close your eyes and imagine a hemoglobin that's floating around in your bloodstream. Um, as time goes on, glucoses are piling on and collecting on that hemoglobin. And the longer that that hemoglobin sits around in your bloodstream, so if that red blood cell is, is hanging out a long time, longer than the three months that a red blood cell normally lives, the longer than the 120 days, 
um, it will have lots of sugar built up onto it, um, and the A1C will read falsely high. And so those patients are usually people with like iron deficiency, where the bone marrow is kind of slow to turn over the red cell population. On the other side of that would be patients with fast turnover. So individuals with sickle cell or recent bleeding events or hemolysis may read actually kind of low. So there's some intrinsic issues with the A1C. Uh, one other interesting finding that we've seen is that with uh, the advent of continuous glucose monitors, we're able to check a person's glucose 24-7 and get a, a real average. And uh, for people that are African-American in heritage, their A1C will tend to run about a half percent higher than their actual average glucose. And it's really unclear, actually, why that is. But if you put a CGM on other ethnicity uh, background people, um, people with different ethnic backgrounds, um, you don't see that same effect. So there's some problems with A1C. Um, so to answer your question about targets, we want to look at the individual that's in front of us and, and look at really their risk for hypoglycemia. Uh, we have lots of tools to lower blood sugar, and I think we're more recently coming in, in line with understanding that uh, lower is not always better at any cost. Uh, some of the, the hypoglycemia that we cause actually very much harms patients. And so uh, that's why these newer A1C targets are being discussed, uh, because the, the hypoglycemia event rate has been significant and harmful. Jeff, I wanted to go back before we dig in a little more to the targets. Just when you mentioned the variability, it, you know, 0.5% is is not trivial, right? Because when you're talking about someone that's already kind of stabilized on a therapy, like if you're adding a DPP4 inhibitor, the the change in A1C with those is like 0.5%. So it's kind of funny that like the you know, the variability in the test is equal to like how much you'd expect it to change with one of these medications. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, you know, I, I have to say I have a bias because I worked on a work group to develop a guideline, but the evidence we looked at, we took that into account. And, you know, if you use a dichotomous A1C value, like let's say we say arbitrarily, you got to be less than seven. Well, I shouldn't say arbitrarily. I mean, it's based on evidence that shows that when we lower your blood glucose, we reduce your chances of microvascular disease. That's really what we're trying to prevent with sugar control is microvascular disease. Uh, macrovascular disease, it's much more contributed to by hypertension, hyperlipidemia. But so keeping the A1C down is certainly important. But um, uh, a dichotomous value of, you know, be less than seven, if I'm 7.1, you know, are you going to start me on another medication? Um, you know, if you're right. strictly following guidelines, maybe. But so in our in our guideline, we proposed uh, ranges of values, and those ranges are suggested. There's a great table that we can include uh, in the materials here that you can just look at and estimate the patient's lifespan um, between you know going to live a long time all the way down to you know very short lifespan, as well as their microvascular disease burden. So those with uh, long lifespan and no microvascular disease, you'd want to have strict A1C goals. Uh, we would suggest six to seven. Uh, as you develop uh, more microvascular disease or a shorter lifespan, and again, I have no crystal ball. It's based on you, the clinician, and this can change over time. But you know, somewhere between uh, seven to eight. 
And then for those individuals that are at uh, much higher risk from lows and are, are much older, seven and a half to eight and a half is very reasonable. So I think I think ACP was on, on we're like doing well by saying you know the majority of patients I think we're over treating and they're trying to just kind of put a call out there to maybe shake us a little bit and say hey you know you might actually need to be seven to eight is probably okay for a lot of people and it was a little controversial because there is absolutely evidence that keeping you a little lower on on there does well for patients, but uh, if you're getting hypoglycemia involved, that negates your benefit. Yeah, Jeff, when so, I, Jeff, oh, go ahead, Paul. No, I was just going to ask him, I don't want to take us too deep far down the rabbit hole, and I think we're going to talk about sort of diabetes and cardiovascular disease later on and agents for that. But in terms of, of the evidence now, you mentioned that the, the tighter control is known to sort of help with the microvascular disease. Where where are we evidence-wise with the macrovascular complications? I always feel like it's maybe it helps and then it doesn't and then it does, and I feel like I've kind of lost track. So where what's the current thinking in terms of macrovascular prevention uh, with tight diabetic control? Yeah, so I mean, the, the big trials we use to determine where we guide patients to be are, are the diabetes complications and control trial, the DCCT, and then the EDIC trials um, uh, uh, that are extensions there. Um, and they're based on microvascular disease, so incidence of retinopathy, microalbuminuria, and, and uh, peripheral neuropathy. Um, there, there is a benefit to lowering A1C to prevent micro, or I'm sorry, macrovascular disease, which is coronary disease, strokes, peripheral vascular disease. Um, but it, it's a, it's a really, I think a, you have to understand it's in part of the comprehensive care, which should include right. blood pressure and, and lipid control. And it, it's really, I, I would say, a much minor player for macrovascular disease than, uh, than the hypertension lipid stuff is in preventing those problems. Yeah, Jeff, when I when I was reviewing uh, stuff to to do our interview, we did we we talked about the ACP guideline. I was just shocked by the evidence. I so for and what the conclusion that I came to is that you know A one C is a it's a surrogate endpoint. It's a it's a marker of how well you're doing with like blood sugar control, but it very much matters what you're doing to get that blood sugar low. I mean, if someone through diet and exercise and they're on just metformin and they get their A1C to 5.5%, that's probably fantastic and that that person's not at risk for hypoglycemia. But if you drop someone's A1C to 5.5% by pounding them with like sulfonylureas and insulin, we know that doesn't we know that does not benefit them, especially if they're not doing diet, lifestyle, controlling their blood pressure and their and their lipids. The, those they're not going to have benefit there. So I think it matters sort of the lifestyle stuff and and the tools you use to get there. And, w- and when we talk about the GLP one and the SGLT two drugs, I mean those those patients in those trials had benefit without lowering their A one C below seven percent. Yeah, so I mean, there there are some drug class and mechanistic effects that are benefiting those patients in addition to the effects those drugs have to help the patient lower their sugar, um, which which are exciting um, and, and new, and I think uh, should be looked at. And uh, with competition between the drugs, we hope they become more cost uh, available to patients. But yeah, there's um, they they are awesome for some of that. Mm-hmm. And and one other point about like the the microvascular complications. I know 
with the the big diabetes trials that were done in type two diabetes uh, for this for the tighter control, it, it was it was the the endpoints they looked at were like photocoagulation, which was is like a marker of retinopathy, right? And then microalbuminuria. But as far as like preventing patients developing like end stage renal disease or painful neuropathy, I don't really think that's been that's panned out that that you can do that. No, and those are harder to measure. You yeah. Know? So you can you can look at the back of the eye, and you can take pictures nowadays. Uh, and that's very often what optometrists and ophthalmologists are doing to to very sensitively look for diabetic retinopathy. And and uh, microalbuminuria is also easy and reliable to interpret. Um, uh, younger women that have um, bumps in that, you got to worry about potentially them having a UTI or something else that's causing the bump. But um, in general, it's a it's a very um, easy to interpret and reliable lab. Uh, but yeah, those other clinical states are a little bit different, diff- difficult to pin down. Um, and so, yeah, we, we like you mentioned, we assess for retinopathy and microabdomen. Paul or Stewart, is there anything else we need to talk about on this A1C targets? Well, it's since Jeff actually mentioned briefly the continuous glucose monitoring and uh, their relevance to A1C, um, just I wonder if you could talk about the general principles of how to actually use it and because uh, I, I think there was a, a Twitter user who had a question about Yeah, it. so this was at UNCMD asked us about this. Is continuous glucose monitoring a better outcome to target than A1C? And like, how do you use it? Yeah, so, you know, just to take a step back from using those devices, um, we, we all have access to, to finger sticks and uh, our typical uh, strip-based glucose monitors. You know, patients can get them uh, at Walgreens or at the local pharmacy, and you can uh, typically get them available for fairly cheap. Uh, but when we're when we're monitoring response of glucose to therapy, uh, I think there are four main times in the day that are important to check blood glucose. And I think you also have to understand what the patient's medications are and when you want to check blood sugar. Um, so, you know, that patient that's on metformin only, there's really no reason to be checking their blood sugar necessarily on, on a daily basis. All, all you're doing is uh, poking their fingers for fun. And uh, when, uh, so the thing, the numbers I, I'm looking for are the first sugar of the morning, that's the fasting blood sugar. And uh, we use that to make a lot of treatment decisions. Uh, I, I want to get the before lunch and the before dinner number. And then one uh, post meal, two hours after a meal, and they can choose which meal they get that on. Um, and so I'll typically ask the patient to write these on a sheet or chart because if you're just checking sugars in a meter, you know, if the time is set, uh, if it's not set well, um, or uh, it's just like there's a whole line of numbers, but I don't know if that was the post meal or the pre meal, it's not helpful. So I usually have them write it down for me so I can have them record, you know, sometimes other details like what they ate, uh, if they were injecting insulin at that time, and what dose they gave. And so, you know, while technology is great, it, it doesn't capture a lot of diabetes, and, and I still like those bloody sheets of paper that they come in with. <laughs> right, absolutely. To, that, that help me make those decisions. So, um, yeah, so I, I think that's that's where you want to start with the patient and guide them on their therapies to, to reach the goals. Continuous glucose monitors, I consider for patients on intensive insulin treatment um, that we may be missing more uh, data points throughout the day. Uh I think there are some patients that may benefit that are have type 2 diabetes that are also on intensive insulin. Um, so uh, type 1s are probably the most uh, benefited by them. Um, but there's kind of two types. Uh, there are, are um, 
the Abbott Freestyle uh, Flash Glucose, uh, which is kind of a little button that goes up on the arm. Um, and can you get a little hand meter that can be waved on there? Um, fairly cheap system. I think the reader is about a hundred bucks, and each one of those buttons lasts about ten days, and uh, are, are, are fairly uh, achievable with insurance and just buying them. Um, so for a patient that wants an option that is other than doing finger sticks, if they need to do lots of those, this is an option. Uh, Full blown continuous glucose monitors uh, like the Dexcom um, or, or others that. Uh, can continuously read glucose every five minutes um, and alert the patient for lows, alert the patient for highs. So they have the added advantage of providing push alerts to the patient. Um, so, so those are some of the ways we check blood sugar for patients. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like it's for, for most patients that we're seeing in internal medicine, it's not really going to be for them because it's just too... I mean, it's, it's too much information. You don't, I I wouldn't even know what they're going to do with it, but maybe, maybe for select patients, they'd probably be seeing an endocrinologist if they were, if they were in that much trouble with their diabetes. Yeah. And so one of the things you got to remember too, so with type two diabetes, which is the majority of people, uh, 95% of people with diabetes, um, and that's probably who most of our listeners are, are treating, um, the, there's a lot of fudge factor that the pancreas provides because that person's going to have some beta cell function for, for a while during their diabetes journey. Um, and if you, uh, aren't perfect with your medications, uh, the, the pancreas can either turn off beta cell function a little bit and reduce the chances that we move to hypoglycemia, or it can make up the difference and provide some insulin for the patient. Um, to, to cover for what you're not providing. And so getting really precision minute-to-minute blood glucose levels uh, with a continuous glucose monitor is a little bit less important in those patients that are on just oral medications, uh, on non-insulin regimens, because there's so much fudge factor in the patient. Um, guiding with an A1C or guiding with finger stick glucose is really uh, uh, sufficient. I love that point about the the difference between type 1 and type 2. Another question in this section that we had from, this is at Jay Gordon Share on Twitter, was uh, how much adult diabetes is a mix of insulin resistance and insulin output failure? And let's let's keep this to type type 2 diabetes. And really, a specific number, please. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay. So, uh, yeah, so, but what's interesting is that we all learn in medical school and talk about insulin resistance um, and the the difficulty with insulin uh, generating the response of the liver and of the muscles to uptake sugar and either burn it, um, use it for metabolism, or or store it um, in the case of the liver. Um, but the other part of that story for people with type 2 diabetes is that they're losing beta cell function. And there are a number of reasons why they have genetic risks for beta cell dropout uh, and, and death. Um, uh, also, people with type 2 diabetes are, are in general obese and carry extra weight. And we all carry, if you, if you pinch your belly right now, everybody do that. You'll feel a little squishy around the midsection. Some of us a little more than others. Uh, we all have a little bit right there. Um, I think this goes back to our prolactin discussion where, I don't know if, uh, Stu, you were doing anything like that, but um, <laughs> if you got a little squishy there, if you got a lot of squishy, you, you kind of uh, don't have more capacity in the subcutaneous compartment and you start putting fat on your liver and on your pancreas. That's the visceral fat. And, a little squishy. Uh, a little squishy. <laughs> and, um, 
um, that fat in the liver is not supposed to be there. We, we in a lean individual, there should be none, and in a pancreas, the same thing. No, and like all my patients <laughs> have it. I thought it was normal. <laughs> no, and it it's it causes inflammation in the tissue, and in the case of the liver, causes uh, it, we call it non-alcoholic fatty liver. Um, when it causes inflammation, it's non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, uh, which is the number one cause of cirrhosis in the U.S. It's overtaken the viral hepatitis, and then for the pancreas, to get back to the question, uh, is as that the fats in the in the pancreas, it causes a lipotoxicity to the beta cells, and they uh, drop out and die. So at the moment that we are diagnosing a fasting blood sugar over 126, or a postprandial sugar or random sugar over 200, those are the diabetes points. That person has lost 50% of their beta cell mass. So yes, type 2 diabetes is about insulin uh, resistance, but also beta cell deficit at the point of diagnosis. Um, and there are some uh, potential ways that we could keep the beta cells alive. Um, uh, the, the TZDs, uh, they help mobilize uh, visceral fat to the subcutaneous compartment. I always joke, I have an endocrine buddy, we're joking, we'll, we'll start everyone on a, a TZDs, and then we'll uh, have a TZD lipo clinic, so we'll mobilize all the visceral fat to their belly subcutaneous, <laughs> and then we'll just lipo it out. Does that work? Uh, I don't know. I, I, uh, <laughs> no one's been crazy it, it enough to, to do that concepts, yet, but, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I have to work on that one. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but taking the fat out of those organs can help preserve beta cell function, helps with, um, it's one of the only therapies we have for people that have NASH. Uh, there's some others that are coming forthcoming. Um, but uh, there's some exciting early preliminary uh, uh, data with the GLP-1 agonists, the, uh, the injections, and uh, soon to come an oral version, and then the, the SGLT2 inhibitors for beta cell preservation. And uh, uh, Dr. DeFranzo, who's uh, down here in Texas where I work, um, I, I get to go to academic conferences with him. He's the the father of diabetes, the grandfather, whoever, you know, the, the, the amazing guru. Um, he was one of the first doctors to propose the mechanism for SGLT2 inhibitors and um, also one of the first to suggest that beta cell function may be preserved longer so we prevent that dropout of the beta cells. Hey, hey Jeff, uh, aside from insulinomas, are there any ways uh, that are... L- let me rephrase that. Um, uh, aside from insulinomas, do you know of any ways to, to regenerate beta cell function or beta cells themselves? Yeah. Yeah, we always used to say that uh, that once they die, they're dead. And there have been, out of California, I don't know exactly which group um, offhand, but have been some studies looking at uh, staining uh, animals. Um, uh, and I think they have some human samples that have been collected after uh, surgeries uh, looking at beta cell regeneration. And, and it actually looks like beta cells slowly uh, grow back after insults or injuries, but at a rate that is below their their drop-off in a disease state like diabetes. Um, but th- it's interesting to see, like, maybe that's a target for treatment someday. Mm-hmm. What about, like, islet cell transplant? Yeah, so that's a tricky one. So you can do auto transplants. Like uh, that would be basically a patient that has chronic pancreatitis. We're going to take their pancreas out because of that issue, and then you can extract the beta cells out of that organ and then re-implant them in the person. They're usually implanted in their liver. Uh, that works out okay uh, because you don't need to use uh, 
uh, uh, immune suppression um, because it's their own cells. And even there, though, with the beta cells not living in their native environment, they, they die off uh, really after five years, but they get you some benefit. Doing a, um, an, a, a allograft, you know, a person to another person, um, it is not really that successful. Um, it's tried in people getting kidney transplants. Um, they may try to do a, a kidney pancreas. Uh, to give a little bit of function, but it, it's really not that successful, and it's going to require more research um, uh, to to get that to work out. Jeff, another question from the same at uh, Jay Gordon share on Twitter was, "What's your take on intensive exercise programs or or and and type two diabetes reversal? Have have you seen it, or have you seen it with intensive dietary programs?" Yeah, so um, uh, like I was mentioning, that we ha- I have in my fellowship these uh, uh, two senior fellows. One is uh, a CrossFit exercise guru and is all into the data about how exercise can benefit patients. And um, I have my other senior fellow is a, a nutrition guru and um, investigates all these interesting diets. And I, I think there is some evidence that's starting to make its way through. One of the problems that dietary and exercise studies have had have been uh, poor data sets. Uh, most of them are association trials um, w- without good ability to show causality and effect. Um, I, I think uh, if you look at and the ADA conference, the American Diabetes Association and others, uh, there's a trial that's getting some play. It's called the DIRECT trial, D-I-R-E-C-T. Um, and if you uh, look that one up, um, they have a very low-calorie uh proposed diet that uh, includes either protein shakes or soups or other types of meal plans. And um, they're, they're basically demonstrating remission from diabetes um, in patients that go on these diets. And going back to our discussion about beta cell function, you know, patients that are on long-acting insulin with short-acting mealtime insulin, you know, the reason why they're progressing to that point is typically they have beta cell failure. And so I don't know if I would typically, I would try and apply an intervention like that to a patient already on intensive insulin, um, knowing that they don't really have beta cell function, you're not going to get remission. Um, there might be other healthy diets you could promote. There might be other ways to get them moving. Um, so I'm always careful in things that are seem kind of faddish. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the American Diabetes Association would recommend getting 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity, which is considered walking at a brisk pace. Um, and so that still stands and has the best evidence. Um, I think some of the newer stuff like the direct trial might apply to patients earlier in their diabetes journey where the beta cells have started to lose function, but aren't defunct. Um, and, uh, yeah, but yeah, that's, those are my thoughts. Yeah. And. I think we need to move on to let's actually let's get back to the case now because we do want to talk about the newer meds in general. We we did also have like kind of a theme of this question on Twitter. So at J Ronan MD asked, you know, back to our case. This was a just to remind people. This was a person with an A one C at nine point five percent. They're on metformin monotherapy, and we we might go to an SGLT too, but Jeff, I wanted to ask you, like, what's your approach? Like, how do you uptrate oral uptitrate oral meds like after metformin? Like, what do you go to next? Yeah, so all of the guidelines would say that the after metformin, your choices are 
very open and we would want to consider the patient. Um, I know that makes it really tough to say like, what's next? The cost of these medications can make it pretty tough to say that, yeah, that it's, it is a, you know, a sure shot. Um, but with his cardiovascular disease, it's, it's definitely uh, an interest to consider using it. So the, the FDA has required uh, diabetes pharmaceutical industry to do cardiovascular outcomes trials for every new med coming out since 2008. And with all of these new drugs, they're looking at advanced uh, cardiovascular disease patients to see how it affects them. And a surprising and a nice benefit from these SGLT2 inhibitors, uh, the Flozans, so Empagliflozan, Dapagliflozan, and um, uh, I'm blanking, um, Canagliflozan, um, it is that they actually seem to benefit patients. Um, and so uh, that was surprising and is, is being shown to, I think, be a class effect. Um, the CANVAS trial and EMPA-REG show that canagliflozan and empagliflozan have good evidence for cardiovascular benefit. Um, and DAPA has um, a trial that's coming out. But yeah, we're, we're interested. It seems like it reduces heart failure readmission. It reduces progression of cardiovascular disease. It reduces progression of kidney disease and at a relative rate of, of probably around uh, 10 to 15%, um, which, which is significant. Paul, have you seen uptake of this? Like, do people seem to be aware of this? I, I mean, we talked about this on the show, I want to say a year or two ago when these trials first started to come out. Are you seeing this uptake locally? Yeah, that's yeah. Thanks for the question. Not not so much. Um, I, I feel like it's there's concerns over price, which I'm not sure are founded, and we can certainly uh, talk about that. I think there's worry about cost of the patients, and there's also concerns about potential side effects as well. But mostly, it's it's a cost consideration. But I still feel like we're kind of I don't know. Um, stuck in the mud of sort of the metformin. I just heard someone today actually propose sulfonylurea as sort of next step right. therapy, which just blew my mind. You know, even wow. for someone with, with underlying CAD. So I don't know that there's. Oh. We're still thinking of those things as someone as as sort of adjunctive right. ASCVD agents. I mean, I I think there's the question. The question now. I mean, you should think. Uh, you should start to think of these medicine as like part of someone's cardiac regimen. Is is sort of what I'm starting right. to think of them as. They're they're that good and and. If you were to like study, like let's say insulin or a sulfonylurea were to come out now as a new drug, you're talking about medicines that will cause you to gain weight and cause life-threatening hypoglycemia. Like we would be just like dumping all over these medicines. Right. And right, but you're forgetting that the upshot is that they don't actually offer any kind of cardiovascular <laughs> protection or protection from the microvascular complications. Well, and I got to yeah. save insulin a little bit because it's it's required at some point when the beta cells die. Um, so still, still got to right. be in there. But yeah, the the sulfonylurea is. I, I agree. They're really uh, you gotta you gotta. The cost is really the only reason we prescribe them. They're right. cheap. That's it. Um, but yeah, the the you're gonna get a diuresis similar to a thiazide diuretic with these flozans. And in fact, if they're on hydrochlorothiazide or chlorothaladone, you need to stop those drugs when you start the the SGLT2 inhibitor. Uh, I usually don't finagle with their loop diuretic. You might consider dropping it a bit or at, at the minimum check in a renal panel, make sure you're not drying them out. But it'll lower the patient's intravascular volume by about 10%. So the best patient is kind of your obese, uh, hypertensive uh, male. And I say that because there is a little bit of a risk, um, or well, I should say significant chance for uh, vaginal candidiasis, um, uh, fungal infections, uh, yeast infections, 
And, uh, you know, they can be treated with fluconazole and topical stuff. Uh, more frequent in women. You can get it in men. We call it balanthitis. Uh, ur- true, true urinary tract infections uh, up a little bit in risk, uh, not as much as the yeast stuff. Um, and so, but, you know, it's a pill. It's once a day. You lose weight. You, you pee out about 300 kilocalories. Um, and it helps you protect your heart. I mean, it's got a lot of pros in there. Jeff, is tell us how the A1C or the degree of hyperglycemia or the degree of A1C elevation relates to how effective these drugs are. Like if, let's say someone, their goal was between seven and eight and they're at like 8.2, they're on metformin monotherapy and you add this, is it is it going to help? Yeah. So in fact, uh, the higher their blood sugars are, the better these drugs work. These drugs are dependent upon uh, renal flow and uh, their their blood sugar. And um, you're, you're blocking the reuptake of sugar um, at the proximal tubule where SGLT2 uh, as a receptor is prominent. And so all this sugar is, is uh, sent out of the body. Along with it goes a lot of water, which is the blood pressure lowering you get. And um, yeah, I mean, very effective. Sorry to jump to this, but I feel like it's the right time to talk about it. There's all these benefits that go along with it. And sometimes when I'm talking to patients, I still feel compelled to bring up some of the more worrisome uh, potential complications that are sort of brought up too. So it's you're like, yeah, you, you'll lose weight and it's great for blood pressure and it's going to protect your heart and your kidneys. Also, there's this thing with um, amputations and you may get this thing that is a life-threatening infection in the, the groin area. Like how, how worried should we be and how do you counsel patients about that in terms of shared decision-making and being sort of forthright in terms of, of all the data that we have about them? Yeah, so as far as the lower extremity amputations, the CANVAS trial, I think, was the first with canagliflozin that rep- that showed like a concern. Um, but there have been uh, 50 phase two and phase three trials with these class of medications that have been analyzed in a large uh, uh, review and no increase in lower extremity amputation identified. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, so I'm I'm like, eh, the Fournier's gangrene, so the the, the, the uh, that crotch infection that you mentioned, um, it, there's been I think less Real than fifty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Uh, there 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 have been fifty uh, worldwide cases that we've found. Um, I, I don't know exactly what the um, pre-existing factors that would set someone up to to have that would be, but. Um, so I don't know how you might necessarily mitigate it. Maybe bad hygiene. They're just, this sugar filled urine is just, you know, they're not, it could be, (laughs) but so, so the, they may have had a yeast infection first. The, the, the event rate is described as 0.5 per million patient years. Yeesh. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, like, it's kind of like the story with like how we talk about bisphosphonates. They've had to go into the guidelines right. and say that the risk of some of these things like atypical fractures and osteonecrosis are, are lesser than getting hit by lightning. And I the love reason why you have graphs. To, oh, my God. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, so I think we're maybe, and yes, these are concerning health events, but um, I think the more common health events we do need to be more focused on because right. hypovolemia, uh, yeast infections, you know, they're nothing to sneeze at either. Um, these very severe things, you know, maybe you do um, ankle brachial index to see, you know, they have really ratty peripheral vasculature and the extremities are more at risk. I, I don't know that that's proved out anywhere, but I, I, there's such rare events. I'm not sure. The other one that we didn't mention yet is euglycemic DKA. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And so, you know, the, the, it's scary because the patient has a normal blood sugar, but they're ketotic and uh, acidotic and very sick and require hospitalization. Again, event rate is, you know, 20 to 40 worldwide published cases. So th- this is not something that, you know, I'd expect to see. But we should know of them so we can detect them. But I, I don't think it's a no-go. Gotcha. And Jeff, That's very helpful. Thank you. Renal function, the, the considerations from what I was reading, uh, patients, you know, patients with an EGFR less than 30 probably shouldn't use the SGLT2 inhibitors, at least from what I read. And then if it's if their EGFR is less than 45, but above 30, it might they might be a little bit less effective. Is that something that you really take into account when you're prescribing them? Yeah, and so another surprising effect we found is that they actually uh, prevent the progression of kidney disease. And so um, we're not worried with the lower renal function that these drugs will damage uh, the kidneys. In fact, I'm very interested in those lower function patients. But yeah, when the filtration rate drops below 30, the drugs just are not effective uh, for lowering glucose. So that's really the problem. But yeah, between 30 to 45, those are prime candidates to consider. Hey, hey, Jeff, one of the things that I tell trainees about these medications um, or to be a little bit cautious about starting these medications with a super high A1C. So something in the range of say 10 to 12 plus percent. Uh, The concern that I have is that if it requires an average blood sugar of 300 to 350 to prevent them from going into into, uh, uh, ketogenesis or, or ketosis, um, the concern that I have is that you're getting rid of a substrate that is preventing them from going over that that threshold. Uh, one of the recommendations that I give is to try lowering the A1C with non-SGLT2 inhibitor type medications first, uh, sub 10% before starting an SGLT2 inhibitor, um, so that you can prevent them from going into the euglycemic DKA. My understanding of the biochemistry behind it is, is just that, that you're essentially getting rid of the substrate that's preventing them from going into DKA. Yeah, I'd agree with all that. You know, I, the, I'm worried if for the patient that has, is not on insulin and is exhibiting some severe hyperglycemia. Right. If they're on insulin, you know, insulin is the hand on the control knob that keeps us in glucose mode. When, right. when a patient has, you know, a total deficiency of insulin, that hand is released and the, the control knob, if you will, or shifter automatically goes over into free fatty acid burning and ketoacidosis. And so if, and- if the patient's on some insulin, I think, you know, we're, we're really protecting against that. And that's also the reason why if they're symptomatic from the hyperglycemia, so the polyuria, polydipsia, polyphagia that you learn in medical school. You start at Exactly. Because yeah. they're not they're not in a homeostatic uh, uh, state at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So, sev- so severe patients, and um, uh, there are a lot of algorithms out there, but uh, A1Cs that are over nine, you may consider starting insulin. I will say, though, I mean, you could consider doing, I've got some patients, I'll just say, hey, stop drinking regular soda, and I'll see their A1C drop by one to two points. Uh-huh. And then and then you can play with the meds uh, at that point. So, yeah. Uh, one thing I'll just briefly mention, uh, there's a lot of talk that we've had just here, and how do you decide um, shared decision-making, I think someone mentioned that. It comes up in all the guidelines. Uh, if you go to Mayo Clinic has uh, this uh, app and website and everything on how you might help a patient decide which therapies to use. It's uh, shared decision-making. If you Google that with Mayo, there's some stuff that may help you guide your, your decisions. That site's great for, I think we've cited it also on the depression episode, if I'm not mistaken, or one of yeah. them too. There's yeah. a lot of great decision support tools there. That's correct. Jeff, to bring it back to our case, because I know we're running short on time a little bit, is 
despite our reassurance, Mr. Yelnats, our patient, he is scared <laughs> off. He he heard something about Fournier's gangrene. <laughs> he does not he does not want to mess with SGLT two inhibitors anymore after after we counseled him, even though we told him the risk is small. So, but he heard that GLP one agonists are also a newer thing that might be cool. But he he doesn't want to inject himself. So, can he take that by mouth now? Yeah. So, semaglutide is getting an oral version that's going to be prime time soon. Um, the data looks promising for for good effect. Um, you know, we have the cousin, which is a weaker uh, medication, the DPP four inhibitors. Um, which reduce your your own body's breakdown of that GLP-1 hormone. You know, we make GLP-1 after we eat. It's produced in our intestines, and it talks to um, our liver, our muscles, our brain, and says, hey, you just ate, buddy. Uh, stop making glucose. You know, why don't you take up some sugar and burn it? And hey, brain, you know, you're not hungry anymore. Um, and it helps uh, improve insulin release. Um, it, it quickens the release of insulin from the uh, the pancreas in response to the food. So, you can take these uh, um, uh, like citagliptin, saxagliptin, alagliptin uh, to help enhance that. It's really, they're pretty weak drugs and they're pretty expensive. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure how many people are going that route. But the GLP-1s are very impactful. They have that cardiovascular risk uh, benefit that's similar to SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, and uh, the LEADER trial was the first with LEADER glutide and, and others have come out. And... Um, uh, most of them, so liraglutide's once-a-day injection. Uh, its competitors like exenatide and dulaglutide are once-a-week injections, so pretty easy to do. Um, and uh, you get a pretty significant A1C drop, two points. You can lose weight with it um, and uh, potentially preserve beta cell function longer. So um, there are some contraindications. Uh, medullary thyroid cancer patients can't get them. Uh, that's, you know, when we say thyroid cancer, that's usually papillary. Medullary thyroid cancer is usually followed by an endocrinologist. Um, but uh, that's the contraindication. And the main side effect is just nausea, which I kind of call an effect because it lowers food intake. Um, <laughs> but um, they're good drugs. They're very effective, pretty easy to use. You know, um, the injector devices are pretty simple to use nowadays. Do you, do you are you as impressed with their cardiovascular benefits as as the SGLT2 inhibitors? Yeah, um uh, I th- I think they have very similar outcomes when you compare. They haven't been looked at head to head, so it's hard to know, you know, they're looking at a kind of a similar population which is they pick really uh, pa- patients with really sick hearts because they want to see the outcomes occur quickly and then they can publish on it and yeah. sell you on their drug. Um, but uh, yeah, I'd say it has um, a-, a very good benefit. It's not as good for heart failure patients. Uh, SGLT2 inhibitors give you the that volume loss, which is great for failure patients. So. And we haven't we haven't seen any renal protective effect in these drugs. And and one of the questions we had from on Twitter was, can you is there any concern using these in patients with renal disease? Um, not really. They're not nephrotoxic. I mean, the main thing is that you can build up um, a level that can create more nausea. And if they're getting real nauseous now, they're vomiting. You know, their volume depleted. You know, you you bump an AKI out of that. Um, you know, so you do have to be cautious. Um, I would say I'm if they're kind of on the cut point, I'm still going to prescribe it and, and monitor the patient. I don't get too itchy about that. I think I can, I'm sorry if we didn't mention that. I just want to show for a second that the ADA um, guidelines for the management of hyperglycemia. Did we talk about those yet this episode? No, we didn't. I'm trying to remember. No, because I 
one of the things that I like about them, and, and I'll let Dr. Colburn comment on that, but the, I think some of the pictures are very pretty and easy to understand. Like they have a very, um, they have a graph on just sort of basic um, progression of medications for type 2 diabetes, starting with the oral medications and whether heart failure predominates or ASCVD predominates and if there is a chronic kidney disease. And it's sort of a very stepwise and thoughtful approach, including if cost is a consideration um, or you need to minimize hypoglycemia. So it's a, it's a really easy to follow chart for, for folks who are more visual learners and have a hard time just kind of hearing this stuff. Yeah, um, uh, you, you've kind of already said it all. I don't. I don't need to say a lot more. But it takes the main considerations in. Um, you know, do they have significant coronary disease? Um, do they have significant kidney disease that can benefit from these classes of medications? It, it's a great chart. I, um, I, I think it's uh, probably a little bit quicker even than the, the shared decision making. I would certainly refer the audience to it. I think it's a great chart to look at. Jeff, another question we got a lot on Twitter is, uh, let's say for whatever reason, Stanley cannot afford the SGLT2 inhibitors or the GLP-1s, and he's he's tried metformin, glipizide, he even tried a DPP-4, but his, his A1C has even gotten worse. It's now 11%. He, uh, he's going to be started on insulin. Out at, let's say he's on three drugs, met, metformin, glipizide, citagliptin. What are you going to do? You're going to start him on insulin now. Which drugs are you going to continue? Yeah, so the citagliptin's probably really minimal effect. Um, if it's a, you know, it's a, they're expensive. Um, you might consider dropping that. The sulfonylurea, as we're starting insulin, um, you know, they're again, they can be unpredictable with lows. Uh, um, they might be easier for some patients that have trouble titrating insulin or following directions for that. But once they start insulin, um, the medications I'm interested in continuing would be the metformin. Um, if they're on a GLP-1 or SGLT-2 inhibitor, um, those I would continue as well. Those would be the three that I would say um, Actos I would throw into there, pioglitazone I would say is a uh, reasonable to continue. Um, the, you know, the sulfonylureas and, and uh, DPP-4 inhibitors, I, I just don't see that they're going to provide as much benefit when we go to insulin. Um, as you start patients on insulin, if they're on those other drugs, you do need to uh, um, actually, I'm kind of thinking backwards here. If they're on insulin and you start those other drugs, you, you do need to empirically drop their insulin uh, to mm-hmm. be careful to make room for the effect of those other drugs. No one has published exactly how to do that. It is a bit of uh, education monitoring. Um, I think in general, 20 to 30 percent uh, decreases empirically to make some room for those other drugs is reasonable. And um, But yeah, insulin's expensive too, as we were talking about earlier. At a Bayer, Tom had some questions about insulin. You're mentioning the cost of it. Is there a best insulin, like a basal insulin? There's multiple ones out there. Levomir. Um, I'm trying to remember which are the Levomir, Glargine, uh, and Degladec, or is that a brand name? Uh, a Traceba Degladec is a, uh, is a is a generic. Yep. Okay, so out of the basal insulins, do you have any favorites? And is there one that's actually been proven to have better outcomes? Um, no. So the insulins are, uh, they would like to try and tell you that they have differences. Um, some of the concentrated insulins show for patients with type 1 diabetes, uh, subtle reductions in hypoglycemia rates because they have a little bit more stable pharmacodynamic. Uh, they run out over many more hours. Uh, but for your patients with type 2 diabetes, there's really not a clinically significant difference. 
Um, I would say some of your more longer acting, like Glargine, your Detamir, um, the, the Degladec, those medications are all very comparable. NPH is your cheaper alternative to those. Um, you know, you get a 12 hour action out of there. So it, it, you have to do that dose that twice a day, um, to, to cover the patient. Um, but that it's a cheaper option. Um, but yeah, insulin's expensive. It, it was developed in 1921. There's a lot of competitors and we're all, you know, why, why is this so expensive? Even the Basaglar, uh, which is, uh, the Glargine, uh, biosimilar drug that was produced to try and like, you know, champion cheaper insulin for people. It, it, I think it's right now it's more expensive. Uh, yeah. I could be wrong, but it's probably comparable at least. So I'm like, well, what the heck? Um, yeah, so, you know, to answer your question, no, there's not one that I would say is just dramatically better and you have to go to. So it's sort of just, it's what they can afford. I I, I still always, I, I find NPH, I mean, I, I know I know a bit about the pharmacology of it, but I just find that it, it just seems so much more complicated. Uh, I know it, it can be potentially less injections, but it just, it just seems complicated with the kind of peaking and... It, yeah, so, I agree. So I, I personally, my personal practice, I prefer just like the long acting basal insulins. And if I'm going to mess around with mealtime insulin, I'll, I'll, I'll use a short acting insulin. Uh, Yeah, that's my practice too. Um, You know, when you start insulin, usually for people with type 2 diabetes, you can get away with just putting them on basal. Um, There's lots of algorithms out there, but I'll start them at 0.2 or 0.3 units per kilogram. Um, Try and titrate to a fasting sugar in the morning of 80 to 130, and they go up by two units every three days to get that number. Once their basal insulin gets to, so either um, they, they get, achieve the fasting sugar in the morning of 80 to 130, or if they get up to the basal insulin of 50 or 60 units in a day, at that point, um, you, you want to consider going to, uh, a meal-based insulin. So, you know, you don't want to just keep going up and up and up and up on the basal insulin. Once you get to 50 or 60 units, you need to start thinking about some meal time. And with that, you can start it with like one meal a day and progress from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I think uh, one of our co-mentors in diabetes education uh, would get. We he called it Glargine Plus One. Uh, he would use the brand name, but basically, you're given a long-acting insulin, and then they just like for some of these older patients we had in clinic, he would just tell them pick your biggest meal of the day and take the short-acting insulin with that. So they're only doing two injections a day instead of going right to the basal plus the three times, you know, short acting. So much kinder. That's so much nicer <laughs> than what we, than the usual progression. Yeah. Jeff, I wanted to ask you, if if you're going to start somebody, let's say someone comes in, they seem like they're really like their A1C is 14%, their sugars are running crazy, and you're going to start them on metformin and insulin right off the bat uh, for type 2 diabetes, and, and it's a new diagnosis. Do you, can you ever bring those people off insulin? How how quickly does that usually happen? Yeah, so there's an effect. We talked about lipotoxicity, which is fat in the pancreas, and that plays out over time and, and drops beta cell function. Glucose toxicity, so when patients have extremely high glucose, uh, it can be transiently toxic to the 
um, cellular mechanics that are required to sense glucose and then release insulin. And then once you treat a patient and get them a little bit back towards normal, you you know, even though it sounds like, wow, A1C of 14, they're in dire straits, they're always going to need lots of medicine, you might be able to get them to improve, uh, particularly if there's factors like, you know, I'm drinking regular soda and other things that you can help them with. And, um, you know, how long would it take? Um, a, a, probably a month to two months before you start seeing significant reductions in the, the insulin needs uh, with a dietary or a lifestyle or the glucose toxicity being uh, improved. Um, but yeah, I mean, that patient's at pretty high risk to really need insulin ongoing with a with a blood sugar set that, that, got, that got that high. Can I ask you about a different type of patient? I feel like I see this all the time where we've had patients that sort of went through the progression. They Maybe they started on metformin and then the sulfonylurea was added and didn't quite do it. And then they were put on insulin and metformin and then just kind of ride that out and they're doing fine-ish. So they've been on that regimen for like, you know, they're, say their A1C is eight and change and has been for years. Is there a role for starting to like add on a GLP-1 and seeing if you can't start scaling back on the insulin? Now that we have these newer agents that have these protective effects, is there a role for for trying to get folks off of insulin now that we have them? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you've got the money uh, available, um, you know, and they can, we can, if they can afford it, uh, you, you get a weight loss benefit out of it, and you have these cardiovascular benefits that are available. And so, um, yeah, I, I do think there it's worth the effort because it is going to take work to titrate down their insulin, start this new product um, with the GLP one injections, the once a week injections. They have a slow onset, so uh, because the half life is a week, um, and we're injecting them every week, it takes four half lives or four to five weeks before that the full effect of the GLP ones kicks in, and so that's hard to to play with the patient and predict and get them to get their insulin titrating. So yeah, you have to have a savvy patient. You have to have the time and effort to be able to instruct, you know, reducing the insulin maybe by twenty or thirty percent having them watch their fasting blood sugars and reducing more if they're if they're getting hypoglycemic as the GLP-1 really kicks in. Um, but I think it could be worth the effort for sure. Uh, younger patients even more so with the many years that they're going to benefit from the drug. Yeah, the the trials, the cardiovascular protection trials, you, you mentioned they were people with really either existing disease or really high cardiovascular risk. They were less than five-year trials and they were able to show benefit. And I, I think if it's a patient that you think is at high cardiovascular risk and they have a life expectancy more than five years, uh, even three years, I think they showed some benefit in these trials. So it, it seems like we should be aggressive if we can get patients on them. We should be aggressive about using them. Uh, yeah, I agree. And you know, the weight loss can't be overstated. I mean, you get right. you, improvements in all of the other health parameters for the patient that we know that weight loss helps with. And uh, yeah, ways that you can help patients achieve that, it, it's very helpful. Yeah, Paul, if you really have a lot of money, you can get the fixed dose where it comes with like, uh, it's one injection that has the insulin and the and the GLP ones. I think that's something. Yeah. That yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, at Cashlack, like just the formulary, the sky's the limit, whatever you want to order. Is, yeah. Lixazenatide is one of those products. There are a few of those out there and they, yeah, they're easier. So typically things that are easier um, it showed, it can have good efficacy. So, yeah. And you mentioned, so you gave a very good practical approach for sort of the addition of a GLP-1 to someone who's been on insulin for a while. Do you say you want to add an SGLT-2? Is there, what sort of practical considerations are there in terms of adjustments that you need to make? 
It'd be similar. You know, I would drop their their long-acting insulin by about 20 or 30% to make room for the effect of that medication. I'd give the patient uh, information about what low blood sugar symptoms are and to check for that and to allow them to drop their insulin doses further. And um, yeah, it would, it would be similar. Um, got a quick question as well, kind of piggyback on top of that. So you, you had mentioned earlier about being on thiazide-like diuretics and stopping those initially when you start an SGLT2 inhibitor. What about patients that are on loop diuretics for heart failure? Yeah, I usually don't uh, mess with the dose. I'll, I'll keep them on the same dose. You do have to do a renal panel uh, about a week after starting to make sure that you haven't dried them out too much. Uh, but I have not been titrating them on their loops as I start the SG2 inhibitors. I think some of those patients, and again, it's a little bit of this squishy clinical thing where you're looking and if they look dry, you might drop it. If you're like, eh, you're probably a uvolemic, maybe you're carrying a little extra, which is probably most patients in, in, in that I see, um, I would start the SG2 inhibitor without adjusting the loop and, and they do okay in general. Uh, but I would say you should check a renal panel a week after to make sure you haven't dried them out too much. Give them an AKI or something. All right. Thank you. Jeff, Stuart, Stuart and I used to do a morning report where we had uh, your friend, uh, your your friend, the diabetes expert, come by, and we would just never run out of questions, and I think we're kind of in yeah. that situation tonight, but I'm going to ask you for take-home points, yeah. and you are always invited back to talk anything endocrinology, but give us, uh, what are your favorite take-home points, or or even something we haven't talked about that you just wanted to point out to the audience and, and leave them with? Yeah, so uh, most people with diabetes have type 2, um, but scrutinize the, what the patient looks like. If they're thin and they don't have hyperlipidemia or hypertension, uh, at any age, a person can be a type 1, and uh, checking GAD antibodies uh, to evaluate that is important if you, that's the situation. But for most people, uh, they're type 2s, and metformin is the number one indicated drug. The other medications are tailored to the patient's needs. So as we've been talking about, if they have heart failure, chronic kidney disease, um, there's strong evidence and now guidelines that would promote using the GLP-1s and the SGLT-2 inhibitors to give unique class effect to, to benefit those disease states. Um, cost has been a big part of our discussion today. Uh, it certainly has to be considered. Um, I am much not a fan of sulfonylureas because I treat a lot of older patients that are at risk from those. Um, and uh, I, I think with, with patient care, uh, trying to make the decision with the patient, that shared decision-making is certainly important, and, and that just takes practice. I would say don't be afraid of these SGLT2 inhibitors and the GLP-1s. Um, they're, they're becoming easier to apply. I think, you know, if people wait for an endocrinologist to apply them, they've waited too long. Primary care doctors should be using these drugs. Most people with diabetes are not going to be able to be seen by an endocrinologist. It's just a sheer numbers issue. Um, about 12% of people in the United States have diabetes. And um, they're very effective drugs, although there are some concerning side effects. Um, luckily, they're very rare. And um, I think the benefit in, in most cases is going to outweigh um, th those concerns. Thank you so much, Jeff. We'll definitely have to have you back in the near future uh, for either diabetes, thyroid, something like that. We'll, we'll find something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Sweet.
I might like that one better. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right, Paul, because we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or contact us at the or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for the show, the great Matt. And to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Jew Man Jew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. I assume that was supposed to be Matt Watto. <laughs> yeah, that that was me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how many. Okay, there's only one Matt on our team at this yep. point. Outstanding production, okay. Matt. I, <laughs> <laughs> I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto, and I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thanks and goodbye. Good night. Seriously, good night. It's late.